Welcome back to the Work For It podcast. This is an interview with the one and only Darren Hiles from Stormlight Forge. But before we get into that interview, let me go ahead and shout out our sponsors. First and foremost, Maritime Knife Supply. Go check out their stuff over at maritimeknifesupply.ca. That's where you're going to find all of the things you need for making knives or other things. I mean, like Darren here, he's not only making, I mean, he, he makes some knives around, but it's a lot of other things. And I imagine you get a lot of your things or could get a lot of your things over at Maritime Knife Supply. So go check them out. That's where you're going to find tools, abrasives, steels, um, the handle materials, just about everything you need. But if you want to really upgrade, go check out Baker Forge and Tool. I know Darren used a lot of Baker Forge and Tool. You can check <laughs> them out over at BakerForge.com and use promo code WFI10 for 10% off. Darren, do you use WFI10? I don't most of the time, but that's mostly just because I'm trying to support people. That's oh. not because I don't want to save the money. All right, all right. So you're you're trying to you're you're bumping up the Baker Forge boys. I appreciate that. But yeah, you guys out there, go use WFI ten for ten percent off for the best damn Damascus out there. I mean, just go over to Stormlight underscore Forge and check out all of the worry stones over there. You're gonna see just how pretty some of that Damascus is, and by the way, thank you to the Patreon supporters. We couldn't do this show without you. Let's get into the show. Darren, my man, how you doing? Good, man. That's awesome. I really appreciate you sitting down with me. I have been a big fan of your Worry Stones and your other Forge projects, and it, I am really honored that you're sitting down with me. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, man. For sure, for sure. So let's jump right into it. I was lucky enough to meet you at uh, Blade Show this year, and you know we got some to spend some quality time together. And I am just absolutely flabbergasted by your Worry Stones, the story on how you got into the Worry Stones, and all of the other Forge projects you got going on. So why don't you go ahead and tell me why in the world did you think of doing Worry Stones with all these Damascus? I actually had a customer that's bought like a bunch of lanyard beads and uh, one of my twisted copper mask screwdrivers. Yeah. And uh, he was like, hey, you know, I've got these, they call them sliders, like fidget toys um, nice. that have like magnets in them or whatever. And he's like, you know, would you ever consider doing something like this or worry stone? And uh, I had heard a little bit about worry stones because, um, I mean, I have some pretty serious anxiety <laughs> and uh i know you know neil from maximus knives oh yeah um his son has got asd autism spectrum disorder and so i have a bunch of other friends with children that have the same affliction and they tend to get it helps them relax and it gives them mm -hmm. like an object to focus on and uh man i made one and it's just like blown up i've made <laughs> 40 in the last month and a half now when you made the first one were you thinking is this gonna be my whole life now like because i imagine you made the one and you know it got some pretty good feedback and all of a sudden you get an order after order was there ever I, like was there ever like a worry <laughs> comically was there a worry that worry stones was gonna be your thing i didn't expect it but it's that's what it's kind of turned into um I've, I've gotten a couple orders for like lanyard beads and stuff since then, but yeah, it's been, 
like 99% of what I've been making recently is Maury Stones. I mean, good on you for realizing like this is the thing that is selling well. So let's go ahead and run with it. Yeah, I talked to Koi a little bit about it because I use Baker Forge and Tool Material almost exclusively. And uh, he's like, you know, put a bunch of them together, you know, and stop doing your individual posts, you know, drop one on like a Friday or a Saturday that is like all your available inventory. And I'll, you know, tag me as a collaborator in the post. And, you know, then you'll be able to, you know, really capitalize on that impulse buy instead of uh, waiting for customs. You know, I really love that, you know, Baker, Koi Baker always seems like he's finding ways to, you know, improve other makers' lives and, like, shout people out and get their stuff moved if they're using their steel. And it seems like you and Koi seem to have a nice little symbiosis going. Yeah, that first reel hit, like, 26K, um, which is unusual for me. I'm a little guy, so I don't <laughs> usually see those kind of views on my reels. Yeah, I'm the same way, man. Like, And that's kind of where it's been fun doing the sticker. First of all, thank you for sending me or giving me one of those stickers to put up on the door. But it's surprising just how much like just putting someone else as a collaborator really boosts stuff out. Have you been noticing that? I mean, obviously Baker Forge is doing well, but you've, you've also used other people's stuff. Yeah, I try to anytime I have somebody that can be added as a collaborator, um, I noticed a lot of accounts, it'll say they don't have access to music, and so it yeah. won't let me do that, so I'll just tag them in it. But um, Chris Magnus over at Timber Tiger, mm -hmm. um, me and him go way back, and so I've got a fair amount of his material, so I always add him as a collaborator. And Charlie over at Broken Anvil. Um, yeah, but it, it definitely it seems to help both parties because it, it posts to both pages and you both get the views, but... Yeah, so you brought up Chris Magnus from Timber Tiger. He and I have become pretty close over the last, I mean, I've known him for a couple of years. He's sent me a couple of things, but over the last couple of months, it's been fun really getting to know him and like hanging or like talking with him quite a bit. How, where did you first run into him? You said you, you guys go way back. Um, honestly, I think I heard his name on the podcast on WFI. And, oh, really? Uh, yeah, I think it was like right before I became a Patreon or a patron. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so I like just added him, you know, started following him and we kind of started talking. He wanted to know about Mokume and because that was primarily what I was doing at the time was making Mokume. And uh, he had a bunch of questions about that. And we talked forever about like I've been wanting a low layer twist Damascus billet from him. Mm. And uh I, you know, I'm like, I get that this is unusual, but I need it to be like two inches wide and, you know, as thick as you can make it, but at least a half inch by whatever length you can get. But he twists all that stuff by hand. So Yes, he does. He's a badass. Yeah, he's a great guy. Um, he is. And, you know, I really, I, I want to ask you about Mokume. Mokume? Is that how you say it? Mokumegane. Mokume. I'm never going to say it right. I'm good. I'm just going to stop. <laughs> But I've Mokume. seen it. Mokume. Mokume. Okay, Mokume. So, I mean, it's different layers of, it's copper and brass or bronze? Um. So generally in the beginning, it was all, well, actually in the very beginning, it was all quarters. So quarters are made from cupro nickel. So it's like copper with a, uh, 
nickel coating on the outside. Right. Um, and then I moved into just copper and nickel silver. Um, oh, okay. Well, it, it kind of looks. Kiln, then... It looks like a copper and like a goldish color. So I, I that's why I assumed that it would have bronze or brass in it. Yeah. So I I didn't actually start with the bronze until like I got some from Koi and he was using bronze. Um, the bronze that he uses in his bronze masks and stuff like that has a much higher melting temperature that's like very close to copper. Right. So it's a lot easier to bond. Um, but like brass in general, I started doing it because I really like that triple out, like the three color variation. It looks really good, especially like twisted or patterned. But brass is a nightmare to work with. Well, tell me about the process, because if it's such a nightmare, it's got to be an absolute pain in the ass. So originally I was making everything in a forge. Um, mm. I don't have any kind of temperature control or anything. It was just learning, you know, to eyeball everything and do it by color. Um, so in the beginning, it was just quarters that I had taped in masking tape and then wrapped the thing <laughs> of steel wire around and <sighs> tossed them in there until they got, they call it sweaty. Like you can kind of see that the copper is starting to get to that, the solidest point. And then you take them out and give them a smack and set the welds. And then once you get everything set up, you can go back in and forge it out with brass and bronze. Originally, the stuff that I was using, it's very difficult to not get the brass to delaminate because it's more in like the 16 to 1700 degree range. Whereas like copper is closer to like 1900. Mm. Um, so then I did a little bit of research on it. And a lot of the people that use like gold and palladium and silver and precious metals, they use press plates. So basically it's, I made some three eighths inch stainless steel plates with six holes in them and uh, ran bolts and nuts through those. And then, you know, I cut and stack everything and clean it all up and, then put it in there and throw it in the forge until it gets up to a little over a red, like red orange, and then hit them with a hammer. Yeah, I mean, you saying that makes it sound super easy, but if I'm standing there, I feel like I'd be sweating bullets because you let anything get a little bit too hot and all of a sudden it's a puddle. Yeah, I couldn't tell you how many chunks of delaminated half Mokume piles that I have out there. I, uh, eventually I saw Brian house's video on how he converted his big ceramic kiln to like a digital controller. And so I went out and found one. I paid like 150 bucks for one and, uh, did his little conversion to it or whatever. And that made it a million times easier. Once you get your temperatures and stuff dialed in, it's not so bad. And then when you're forging it, you just have to remember not to get it too hot. Yeah, I mean, I I also did, or I almost did the same thing and was in talks with picking one of those old, like, ceramic kilns up from, like, a Facebook marketplace situation and going down that same road. But then, luck, you know, it just didn't work out or, you know, I asked the person to plug it in and test it before I come over and it doesn't work. And, oh, it's some people. <laughs> But it's it's oh, a sorry. lot of work. I, I I had the same issue. I turned like he plugged it in, turned it on, everything worked. I brought it home, plugged it in, turned it on, and it immediately trips my breaker. Ugh. 
So that was so, just a wiring thing for you. Obviously, you just needed a – was that a something that you were able to fix by, like, running a little bit thicker wire? Um, so the kiln that I got is actually 50 amps Whoa. at 220. Two yeah. Um, so actually, I don't, I don't use it anymore. It died, and uh, the first time I think it melted the, the relays – um, the second time it, something happened to the PID controller. So now I've actually been talking to somebody on Facebook marketplace about, they have a, uh, I think it's an even heat, but it's a smaller one. It's like a eight by eight chamber. Yeah. But it's 450 bucks. I've got more than that in the kiln that doesn't work in my garage now. So I definitely wish that I had done that from the get go. But honestly, I mean, 90% of what you're working with is smaller, like your your screwdrivers or your worry stones or stuff like that. So you don't really need a huge even heat. No, and I don't make huge knives like that either. I think the biggest knife I made so far overall was like maybe eight inches. And it was like a, you know, a full tang. The handle was made. It was all made from spring steel. So it was all one piece. Gotcha, gotcha. Yes, I was looking through your Instagram feed and I stopped on this neck knife that you did. It didn't have it didn't have any sort of handle material on it, but it had these plugs of Mocha Dang it, now I'm not going to say it right again. Mo, mocha Magane. Ugh. Yeah, you can just call it Mocha May. Okay, Mocha May. Damn it. I'm, you know, there's just one of those things. I I don't know if it's just my Midwestern tongue has a hard time saying stuff like that. I don't know what it is. A lot of people call it Makume, and every time Ryan Coakley says it on one of his podcasts or when I'm talking to him about it, he's like, yeah, I got some Makume. (laughs) And he even spells it M-A-K-U-M-E. But anyway, (laughs) it's not a big deal. I had to look it up, and then if you Google it and you listen to the Japanese lady say it, it's it's different than the way I say it. Well... Honestly, at this point, I'm I'm just giving up on it. But you you made a little neck knife that had like plugs of it in in the handle, and that looked really cool. I've never actually seen that like plugged in. I've seen like forge weld plugs before, but not as a decoration like in the handle. That was that was a super interesting. What made you decide to do that? Um, I was just trying to fancy it up a little bit. I made a bunch of those little neck knives. Um a couple years ago and then I had you know a bunch of people like request them and they were all just made from spring steel um and the last two that I made I decided after they were quenched and tempered and everything else that I was going to drill through these and add these plugs so it wasn't during the forging process it was afterwards oh jeez um, yeah. that's always the worst so did you have I ruined to... a bunch of drill bits. So I was going to say, did you use some solid carbides or how'd you end up getting through them? Um, I sharpen them. I just take the, the drill bits once they dull, take them and sharpen them on the belt grinder. And Hey, there you go. It works. If it works, it works. So let's go ahead and switch over to your, you know, crazy, really intricate looking screwdrivers. Um, first of all, Wow. <laughs> Those things are so cool. They're so incredibly beautiful because you you use, you know, stabilized woods in the handle and the twisted copper Damascus for some of them. It's just so incredible. What made you what gave you that idea? 
I mean, really, I was just looking to do something different. When I got into the hobby at like the beginning of COVID, I set out to make tools. It was, you know, I was really into like the blacksmithing side of it and making hammers and punches and tongs and stuff like that. And that's what I thought I was going to do. And uh, I just, I didn't get any kind of creative satisfaction from that, I guess. Mm. Um, I, you know, for the longest time for, you know, probably 15 years, I was really into music. I was in a couple bands. I played guitar every day. And then uh, you have kids and things slow down and whatever. You kind of lose those those hobbies. So I didn't really have a creative outlet. And uh, I was getting a bunch of material from Koi. And uh, I didn't know that you weren't supposed to forge his stuff. So <laughs> I started twisting stuff. And I probably failed seven out of ten times with that in the beginning. Um, that can be an it's, expensive it's, little experiment. Yeah. Um, but eventually I figured out how to do it and uh, how to forge it without it all coming apart. And then I just I wanted to get back into making tools again. And uh, I didn't see any of that out there. There's no you see all kinds of other stuff where they make it from fancy materials, but I didn't really see anybody making tools that were usable. And I'm trying to remember who I got the idea from. I think Pickle or uh, maybe even Lando from Abstract Blacksmith. Mm -hmm. One of them was like the first one that was like, hey, I really like that. You know, what are you doing with that stuff? And I was like, well, I was going to make a screwdriver and both of them ended up getting one. That's actually how I got my 2x72 chassis was from Nick. Nice. Um, yeah. So you talked about forging Baker Forge and Tool. Now, I first of all, they're coming out with such crazy designs. What gave you the idea of I need to, you know, twist, bend, restack? What in the world are you doing over there? That's that's insane. <laughs> In the beginning, I uh, I bought a box of end cuts off of Koi. I just I reached out to him and said, "Hey man, you know, do you what do you do with all your your scrap, your trash, and stuff that you're just throwing out?" And uh, like, man, we've got like a big pile of these bar ends, and you know, I do sell boxes of these, like the very end cuts off the bar sometimes. Mm -hmm. so I was like, well, you know, send me a box, and uh, I made a bunch of stuff with them, like the little bottle openers and stuff like that. But it was just that straight layer stuff for the kind of stuff I make, it's not, it's just plain um, to me anyway. So I realized that if I forged it, even if you just forged it out a little bit, you know, I'm not, I do it intentionally, leave it to where I'm going to grind some material away. So I know that there's going to be some pattern distortion. Okay. And uh, yeah, I was just like, man, I'm not quite doing it the way they're doing it but I can still make something that one was originally waste and two, that's just kind of plain and fancy it up. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if it's already going to be thrown away and you can take that and forge it into something different, I mean, or beautiful. I mean, that's, that's a win win. That's, that's super cool. Now, well, I also, my uh, original, when I built my forge, I built my, my first forge, with you know no idea what i was doing i watched some youtube videos i made it all out of hard fire brick um, <laughs> no insulation no nothing else just hard fire brick a sheet metal skin and two uh frosty t burners 
<laughs> and uh, it didn't get hot. Like I, I could get everything to like a red or a red orange, but it was I could never get anything to forge welding temperature. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of by accident that I realized like, hey, I can throw this stuff in there and forge it. And if I don't leave it in there too long, then it doesn't come apart. Well, I mean, there's pros and cons in anything. And there's your pro for a forge that just doesn't get hot enough. <laughs> yeah, so dumb luck, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I would say just straight luck. I don't I don't think there's anything dumb about it. <laughs> so we've talked in the past about you forging Damasteel, right? Yep. That is wild. <laughs> there's so I know I understand that you can forge Damasteel, but it's kind of like Baker Forge and Tool and Damasteel. They're just so damn expensive. I don't think I'd ever attempt it. Well, I went to I think it was the either the Texas Custom Cutlery Show or Blade Show Texas. And uh, I can't remember if it was Pops Knife Supply. I think it was. They had just a little box that was like all these small scrap pieces. And so I got some Feather Damascus and uh, a bunch of little pieces of Damasteel. And then I was like, you know, I was going to make pendants or jewelry with it because that was kind of what I was getting orders for at the time. And uh, like, you know what, I'm going to forge this super thin, you know, I don't know what their size is. It's not three sixteenths. It's a little smaller than that. Um, But how am I going to get that round and make it into a screwdriver without forging it a Mm. million times? Right. And uh, you get some definitely get some waste from it, but I think it looks cool. I mean, it's just... it's it's ballsy is what it is it's it's real realistically it's you know you're seeing something that most people are too afraid to do or too you know i i I don't know if scared is the word but most people say you know oh shit that stuff's so expensive i'm just gonna stock removal that because i don't want to mess it up and here you are saying no i want it to be thicker so i'm gonna forge that shit and make it what i want it to be (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was kind of one of those things. I didn't know I couldn't do that. And then <laughs> once people were like, you know, that's super impressive, man. And I'm like, really? Oh. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know this was a good idea. Then maybe I'll try it again. So obviously, you know, forging Baker and Dana Steel has given you that response from people. Is there anything else that you've done that were like, oh, shoot, I just didn't realize that people aren't doing that? Um, I mean, really, it was just experimenting with patterns on the Mokume just because it's easier to work with, I guess. Um, You can forge it cold. And uh, that's I get lots of people that are like, hey, I want to buy a bar of this. And I'm like, I'm not set up for that. I don't have a press. You know, I'm doing all this by hand. But it was really just experimenting with different patterns. And I realized I could do so much more with Mokume than with the other stuff because like steel and all that's already heavily patterned. Right. And when you end up trying to forge that stuff around like that, you end up with like one side that's like a bunch of lines from like the end of the bar. Mm. So then that you have to sense. do something to make it pretty. So then you end up twisting it or, you know, something I mean, to make a variation in that pattern. Obviously it works for you though. Like it, you turn out some really beautiful stuff. I appreciate that, man. So you made a comment, and maybe you're hoping that it slides on by, but you made a comment about being in a band and playing guitar every day. 
we got to we got to go back to it. What kind of a band were you in? So uh, <laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. It's okay. Um <clears throat> So background, I grew up in Houston. All right. I moved to Austin, Texas on 2 weeks notice. Oh um, shit. Like my best friend growing up was supposed to be moving up there. Some other friends of ours were supposed to be moving up there with him. And at the end of the summer, they were like, hey, by the way, we're not going. We're both going to Sam Houston instead of UT, and we're not moving in together. So you're on your own. Wow. Um, yeah. Did those so go from, like, you know. Did those go to friends to, uh, you know, screw you guys? I mean, he's still friends with them. I don't really talk to either one of them much anymore. Mm. Well, um, I mean, how could you? They screwed you over like that. Come on. Yeah. Ugh. So basically, I mean, my best friend's like, I have no idea what I'm going to do. I'm like, you know, I'll, I'll move to Austin. Um, I had been with my girlfriend at the time. We were high school sweethearts and had been together for years. And she was going away to um, Nacogdoches. I don't remember what SFA, Stephen F. Austin. Okay. Um, so I moved to Austin. And a few weeks after that, I didn't know anybody there. So he was kind of introducing me to some of his friends. And some guy showed up and was like, here's a base. You're a mechanic. So I assume that you'll be good with your hands and maybe you'd like to, <laughs> to play this. So I love that. <laughs> so I just kind of locked myself in my room and, you know, I didn't, I didn't know anybody. And I was, I lived with my roommate who's a full-time student and I was the only one of all of his friends that, you know, had a job and was like, you know, full-time worker. So I couldn't go out with them all the time. I wasn't really into drinking heavily. So, you know, I'm not going to house parties and playing beer pong and whatever. Yeah. So I just started playing bass every night. And uh, some friends of ours found out I was playing bass. They were looking for a bassist for their experimental metal band. Experimental metal band. Yeah, it was just a drummer and a guitar player. They had been playing in this blues band for like 10 years. Now, hold on. Hold on for just a second. You joined an experimental metal band, and here you are experimenting with Baker Forge and all of the other stuff that you're twisting up later in life. <laughs> I love that little symmetry there. Sorry, continue. That's okay. Um, so I actually ended up moving in with those guys. We lived together for like four years. We played shows all over Austin because that's kind of what Austin's known for. And uh, some other mutual friends that were a little bit younger than me we're like, hey, you know, we're going to be jamming out. We'd like, we don't have a basis. Why don't you come out here? And that band was called Sleep When You're Dead. Sleep so, When You're Dead. That's a great name. Yeah. Well, the name came about because we would go out to, to Maynard, which is like a little small town outside of Austin, um, every weekend. And we would drink whiskey and play until the sun came up. So the name came from basically our guitar player, we stayed up all night. He had to work the next day. So the sun came up. He left, went to work, came back. We did the same thing that night. Sunday morning rolls around. The sun comes up. And I'm like, dude, you got to get some sleep. Like, seriously, you've been up for like 48 hours. Just go lay down. And he just kept saying, sleep when you're dead. <laughs> and the name stuck. <clears throat> there it is. So are you a Flea fan or what kind of a bass guitar are you? Um, I mean, I have pretty eclectic taste in music. I like a little bit of everything, but, um, 
yeah flea is an awesome basis i started out playing like a lot of tool um rage against the machine incubus stuff like that um because it was easier or at least i (laughs) thought so at the time there you go there you go see you know growing up my my grandpa had a music store so he tried to teach me how to play electric guitar and he passed away right when right when i was like trying to learn so after that i after that i never picked it back up but um yeah that's one of the things that i've always like wish i got back into i feel like i i would be like you where i kind of want to be the bass guitar the the you know backbone of the band instead of the person out front shredding yeah i uh get stage fright every time like we (laughs) would play every week we played all the big festivals like south by southwest and austin holy cow limits and really yeah it was uh eye-opening um but yeah i mean i started playing a little bit more guitar and sleep when you're dead we had songs where like we'd switch so the singer would play bass the you know or she would switch to drums and um yeah so now I i don't I don't play bass anymore. I play an acoustic guitar every couple of months whenever I find some time or what's your favorite thing to play? Or like, if you're just picking it up, are you playing stuff that you came up with back in the day? Or are you, are you finding yourself doodling around on different songs? Um, I mean, mostly nowadays I'll either play uh, three Libras by a perfect circle or uh, a song called Benighted by Opeth. It uses like every string on the guitar and it's, their melodies are beautiful. I mean, they're kind of, uh, I don't, I don't think they're Norwegian, but they're like a death metal band. And uh, they have like just this very melodic flow from like acoustic, you know, clean sounding stuff into this heavy distortion, hardcore metal stuff. And uh, that, contrast always really appealed to me nice nice so let's keep this looking back in in going here because was it right around at the end of your time in the band where you started working with forging and stuff like that uh actually so i have three kids my oldest was born and that was kind of the end of that band we had like a reunion thing where we got back together later but um my singer ended up moving to i think san diego and joining the navy oh wow and uh yeah just everybody's lives kind of went in separate directions and stuff and then um, i met my wife in austin um she got pregnant with our middle child and we uh moved back here to houston and it wasn't until COVID, really, that I started making stuff. I mean, I always kind of tinkered because I've been working on cars since I was 17. Wow. Um, yeah, I got screwed by a shop, basically, and that, <laughs> I never wanted that to happen to me again. So I went to a local shop and said, I'll change oil. I'll sweep the floors. Just teach me because I don't I don't ever want to have to deal with this again. Wow. And, wow. Uh, so we've, was we've got it. If you're if you're willing, I'd love to hear the story on how you got screwed over by a shop. Man, I bought an '89 Honda Accord for okay. 500 bucks from a buddy of mine. All right, um, sounds like then, a good deal to start off. Yeah, it was a great deal. It had air conditioning. It ran. 
Um, it had like 200,000 miles on it, but whatever. Accords live forever, so, though. Yeah. So it was time to get a state inspection. I took it in to a shop around the corner. And they were like, hey, your check engine light's on. It's not going to pass inspection. Well, I didn't know any better at the time. The, all the older stuff gets like an emissions test where they actually stick something in the tailpipe and test what's coming out of the car. So the check engine light is kind of irrelevant. Yeah. So they said, hey, you know, it's going to be 450 bucks to replace an O2 sensor. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> at 16 or 17, I think. I didn't know any better. So I'm like, you know, I have to have it. I have to get it inspected, so do it to it. Um, they did that, and then they uh, called me back and said, hey, we tried to inspect it, but you have transmission problems, so it's going to be like another three grand to fix it if you want it to pass inspection. Oh, so the first one was let's get you hooked by a couple hundred bucks, and the next it's going to be a couple thousand bucks. Okay, I'm seeing where this is going. Continue. So, so basically, at this point, I was furious, and there's no way I was going to spend that on this car. So I took it to a different shop to get a second opinion, and you know, he's like, you know, what did you have done? I showed him, and he's like, you didn't need the O2 sensor. Um, that would have been about $225 here. Mm. So you got screwed by a company called America's Service Station. They oh. still have any shops out there. Do not give them any business. Okay. <clears throat> I did eventually go on to work for that company at some point, but uh, <laughs> then they uh, stopped paying us. Our checks started bouncing and stuff. Oh my so God. They're true I went scumbags. From being, in two weeks, I went from being the oil change guy to the only person in the store. So I was general manager, technician, oil change guy, everything. Mm. People just started dropping like flies. And uh, yeah, that company Goodness. sucks. That company definitely sounds like it sucks. But this new place sounded like it was a little bit better. Yeah, they were really honest. It was an independent shop. It wasn't part of a big chain. And uh, once they told me, you know, they were shop straight with me. They were very blunt about it. And I just appreciated that. So sure. I'm like, hey, man, you know, I don't I want to pay you guys to fix this because I need to get it inspected. <clears throat> so I'd love to learn how to work on cars and stuff. Just you've got anything I can do, if I can just come and sweep the floor or change oil or whatever, like I really just want to learn. I don't want this to ever happen to me again. And he gave me a shot and I've been doing it ever since. Well, what's, so, I mean, you started that at that shop and you, you grew and grew and grew. And then did you have to make a couple, couple more, you know, changes before you're at where you're at now? Yeah, I had actually a friend of mine, had a, another buddy that was working at that America service station shop. Um, and funnily enough, it was the same shop that I had taken my car to and uh, gotten screwed by, but they had changed the name of the company to Procare automotive. Another so like, super know, general. <laughs> I yeah, love, another, I love the names. I love the names of these chains where it's like, you know, American auto, whatever, or, it's always the most general bullshit. Nobody, it's not like it's, you know, Hiles auto or something that where you can like pin it on one guy. Yeah. Ugh. Sorry. Continue. I'm interrupting. It's okay. So I took a job over there because I was trying to move up and there wasn't really space for me to do that at the shop that I was at before. Mm. Like I said, it was a small mom and pop shop. They had two full-time technicians 
and I just felt like I was to the point where <clears throat> I had kind of capped out on what I could make with them. And, uh, you know, the owner was pretty blunt about it. He's like, you know, it's not going to hurt my feelings if, if you want to go somewhere else and do this, but I just don't, we don't have the work to, to give you, to make you a tech here. So sure. I went it to work seemed for like them and it seemed like that, that first guy was a really decent person. Yes. Blunt, but that's kind of what you want in a boss. Yeah, he was awesome. Him and his uh, the general manager of that shop were great guys. Nice. So you got moved over to this American automotive or whatever it is. Yeah, American. Well, it was called ProCare Automotive at the time. But then we found out that the company owner had taken a $2 million loan from Bank of America. Mm. And one day I showed up and there was a sheriff out front and he's like hey you know we need the keys to the building they haven't paid rent in like six months and oh they owe all this God. money we need to know where this brian guy is <gasps> and i'm like I, I don't know who you're talking about or why you're asking me apparently our store was listed as the headquarters i guess so like all the corporate mail everything came to my store and then it just got forwarded on to now wherever it, it turns out it turns out that was brian house and he moved to florida <laughs> <laughs> now i did hear that the guy moved to florida i'm not Whoa! making this up hold on and, this uh, is a conspiracy theory and we're connecting it right to the top <laughs> i never met the guy so i okay. i couldn't say but right. supposedly he uh he had a couple other businesses and i i do believe that one of those was a computer repair shop whoa no, hold on I, I, this this is getting think... fishy here alexa stop <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Computer, stop. <laughs> I love the fact that Alexa had to put her two words in, two cents. Well, I, I changed the name. We have one in my bathroom and one in my bedroom. Okay. And uh, they would both respond if you said something. Yeah. So I changed the name to this one in here to Computer. that word I just said. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, hilarious. So anyways, Brian House is, was screwing people in Austin is what it sounds like. This was still in Houston. Oh, so. Houston. Sorry, Houston. Ugh. <laughs> that is so funny. Like, what are the what are the chances? That's that's so funny. So I did I'm, hear that the guy eventually went on to open a chain of car washes. So oh, that's that's where it's the alter ego. Yeah. OK. <laughs> So we're out. Brian House is is scot free out of this allegation, is what it sounds like. Yeah, Brian's awesome, man. Sure, sure. So, how many were there? Any other shops between where you were then to where you're at now? Yeah, I went to work after we stopped getting our after our paycheck started bouncing. I mean, and then everybody quit, and then I was there by myself. Um, they sent the company auditor to come help like to manage the store basically sure and then uh my second to last paycheck bounced <laughs> and so i was like hey you know this is i'm not working for free so we need to figure something out now did you not she, see the writing on the wall here when everyone else is leaving because the checks are bouncing i did but i was i was getting paid 80 hours a week at that point so it's 40 hours of overtime all so right. I went from making like 500 bucks a week to like three times that. Yeah. Um, and in the beginning, my paychecks cleared, so I wasn't 
super concerned about it. But um, after that second to last one bounced, I was like, hey, I need to get paid. I'm not coming back in until they do. Um, and I felt bad first, so I did come back in. But <laughs> I took my last check to a checks cash place and uh, cashed it and just said, hey, I'm done. Yeah. I didn't want to risk not getting paid for it. That check cashing place actually called me and wanted to like press charges and stuff because the check bounced. Ugh. Wow. So I mean, what what happens there? Like they obviously end up going after the the employer there, but he wanted to come after you too. Oh yeah, they uh, filed charges and stuff, and then. Let's see. I don't think I'd moved to Austin yet. I was still here in Houston working on uh, Wait working a, second. A, a shop. You don't have a warrant out for your arrest still over there, do you? <laughs> no, no. All this happened when I was a minor. So yeah. when I turned 18, the statute of limitations expired and they couldn't prosecute me for anything. So it all just kind of went away. Oh, that's that's pretty sketchy. That Oh, I didn't realize. Hold on. You were that young running 80 hours a week. Yeah, I was 17. Oh my God, I was, I was imagining like a 25, 27, you know, somewhere in there. No, No, that's like, you were young working that much. Yeah. I mean, good on you, but that is just wild. Yeah. I mean, I like money. Um, That's true. I mean, sure. Growing up, my stepdad growing up had a construction company, so I had been working with him probably at like nine or 10. So I, uh, I had money. I liked making money and he was, you know, he was a hustler. So definitely taught me some work ethic. And now tell me about a day on that construction crew at nine years old. Well, so realistically it was just me and him. And then occasionally, um, if we needed help, we'd swing by home Depot and get a day laborer and, uh, just try to find somebody that spoke English and <laughs> we'd go do what we needed to do. We had mostly it was like remodel and stuff like that. Um, he had also worked for an equipment company for a long time, fixing like gas pumps and stuff like that. So we did a lot of like piping out, you know, filling stations and stuff for like oil companies and, you know, gas companies and stuff like that. And on the other side of that, we'd like paint and remodel and put siding on and build awnings and decks and stuff like that yeah but i mean at nine years old (laughs) i mean how are you how are you getting work done and not i mean i imagine i'm thinking of a nine-year-old that there can't be much (laughs) that one can do unless you are just an absolute stud (laughs) not in the beginning um he would come pick me up usually like i'd get home from school around like three or three thirty i think And then he'd swing by and pick me up and take me to wherever he was working. And I would, you know, first I was just the gopher, like go get me some tools or grab this paintbrush or whatever. And then uh, once I started learning a little bit, you know, like if we had done a major remodel, I'd go in and like put all the plates on like the light switches and the plugs and stuff like that. Nice. Nice. So going back to, I mean, obviously being really young, and working with your hands so much, there had to have been right around there, maybe even younger, where you had a first project where you thought the first time, like, I want to make this thing for myself, and then you decided to actually do it. Can you remember what that project was and how it went? (laughs) 
I know I I knew you were gonna ask this. Oh yeah, of course I, I ask I everybody. Was, I was trying to think of like really what was the first thing because when I was little, I took a lot of stuff apart. I just couldn't ever put anything back together, like clocks and toasters and blenders and whatever. Um, but really, the first project I can think of like where I made something. Um, let's see, I must have been my little brother was eight or nine, so. He's four years younger than me. So I was 12 or 13 at the time. Um, and uh, we, I don't know if you remember the show Highlander. That might be a little before your time. I, I've, I've never got into it. No. <laughs> it, uh, my bad. No, oh, no worries. It was a show basically where swordsmen kill each other. Oh, great. Um, Great. And every time they kill another immortal, they gain their power. Um, oh, me and my brother were like really into it because it came on like right when we got home from school. But um, we found some old like one by twos and stuff out in the shed or whatever, where we kept all our materials and uh, decided that we were going to make some swords. So I just started sanding down and carving up these one by twos to look like katanas. And me and my brother would go outside and try to kill each other with them <laughs> i mean that seems like a really cool first project because i mean you know first of all it's swords and your kids and you want to play and you know it's it's a really cool project how did they turn out did did your original idea of what they're going to be match what actually happened oh no i thought i was going to be like this master japanese sword maker and they <laughs> yeah. were going to be great but you know trying to use like an orbital sander um, I didn't know anything about making or anything in general, but, you know, they had a little hilt like we cut and glued some little pieces of one by two for like a guard and sanded them all smooth and rounded them off. And we didn't really put an edge on them. We tried to, you know, grind them down, but it was probably, you know, three eighths of an inch or a quarter inch thick sure. at the at the tip. Honestly, that's probably for the better, though, if you're really looking back. It's good, you know, you and your brothers both have both have both eyes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, goodness. So, I mean, going from the first project to currently what you're working on, you have, you know, not only are you making stuff in your shop, but that's not your full time thing. You you're an auto tech. Like, tell me about your current business. So for, well, actually I did take a little, we'll say sabbatical from working on vehicles. Okay. Um, I went to work for O'Reilly Auto Parts um, for quite some time. <clears throat> and I was managing a store down here in Houston. And uh, one of my customers, they'd been in business since 91. And they were like, hey, you know, we're, we've been trying to sell the shop, but everybody keeps lowballing us and whatever. So you know, how would you feel about buying it? We know you've always wanted to own one. And, you know, I'm like, I don't have that kind of money. I can't pay $300,000 for a shop. And right. she said, well, the wife of the owner was like, well, the last person that came to me offered me $80,000. <laughs> and her husband had had a stroke. He was in the hospital and they just saw this, you know, this little old lady. They're like, we're going to get over on her. And uh, so she's like, so how would you like to buy my shop for $80,000? Wow. I'm like, I would love to, but I don't 
have eighty thousand dollars laying around and she's like we we don't want it all up front anyway we want you know like a little mini retirement you just pay us like two grand a month and you come and take it over and i'll even stay on and work for you and uh we'll pay all the bills for the rest of the year (laughs) how do you say no right i i couldn't exactly so this was at october of 2019 right so i bought the shop i quit my job at o'reilly's i went to work there and then COVID hit (laughs) and uh, they shut everything down. And I kind of, I say I lost my ass. I blew through my 401k, you know, paying bills and we didn't get paid until I think the following October. Yeah. But yeah, that's how I ended up where I'm at now. So that's uh, me and my business partner working on cars and, I can imagine, like, first of all, you're you're getting this business deal that is just too good to be true, could not be any better. Yes, there's a lot of risk. I mean, you are taking on this pretty huge thing, but you just get settled into it, and boom, COVID. I yep. mean, those, those first couple months must have been just absolutely terrifying. It was fine in the beginning, and then I guess the shutdown was in March, I think. Yeah. Um. And we still had work, you know, we had had stuff that had been sitting there and oil changes and stuff. We had a water utility company that we did like fleet service for. Okay. So I had some stuff and we got to stay open because we were considered, um, what did they call it at the time? Essential. Um, because we had this water company's account, but yeah, it was like mid April and it just died. I mean, we would sit there for three or four days with nothing to do. We were just, you know, watching YouTube videos and stuff in the office. And I was, Mm. (laughs) I can only imagine your stress level rising and rising and rising. It's also, you know, with COVID everyone stopped driving. So everyone stopped using and wearing their, their car parts down. And all of a sudden that has a ripple effect to, you know, people are coming in less often and business just generally being on a slump. But now that people are now out and about again, did you see a nice little boom come back? Yeah. I mean, this year has probably been the best year we've had since we bought it. Um, Back then it just sucked because my business partner, I mean, he wasn't married at the time. So we were both kind of living off of our 401ks. My wife was in nursing school, so she wasn't working. Um, right. Wow. And then it started to pick up, like I said, kind of towards the end of the year. I guess people got sick of being locked in their house. And uh, we actually had a bunch of people that started pulling old cars out. Like, hey, this has been sitting in a field for three years. Like, can you get it running again? That's also true because people are now sitting there with nothing to do and they start to fixate on things that they've been wanting to try to fix up and do this and do that. So that that could have been or that should have been a nice little bump. Yeah, well, I mean, like all these people, a lot of people had like lease vehicles or they were making payments on cars. And, you know, if you're not working and you can't afford to eat, you're definitely not making your car payments. Right. Um, A lot of them were like, you know, hey, I've got this 15-year-old car that's been sitting in the driveway. Like, I'm turning this lease vehicle back in, and I'm going to put some money into this old car. And so then it boosted us, and we kind of picked back up again. And Wow. So how scary, like, at the worst of it, how how 
dire did it really get? Were you were you really thinking about like, oh shit, am I gonna have to shut everything down? Yeah, I mean, I was pretty convinced that I might have to go back to work and like get a real job. Yeah. Um, and I was very anti going back to work for a, a big company. Um, yeah. I just I feel- realized, you know, that quality of life increase from being your own boss and not having to answer anybody else um, was huge. So I feel like everybody who ends up working for themselves just becomes completely unhirable because you get so. <laughs> I don't know. Entitled isn't the word, but it's kind of a flavor of, you know, being able to do doing your accountable only to yourself. Yeah, I mean, you become accustomed to a certain quality of life and you don't want to go back to working for somebody else that's going to not be able to provide the same quality of life. Yeah. So how does the how is the um, auto like how is how are how is the shop running right now? Is it is it kind of. Firing at all cylinders? Yeah, I mean, I'm so busy. We've got cars everywhere. I don't even have any place to park stuff anymore. <laughs> I mean, that's that's awesome. Um, You know, it's amazing that this shop was, I mean, the offers were $80,000. So obviously things weren't looking the greatest just a couple of years ago, right before COVID. So it's really cool that you were able to turn it around in such a hurry. Yeah, I mean, so it was more... This couple that owned the shop, they didn't need the money. Um, mm. Basically, their lead tech at the time, because <clears throat> the the owner, the husband, didn't work on cars anymore. He was in his 70s. He maybe did some light diagnostics and stuff like that, but their technician was moving to New Mexico to get married, and they were like, we don't want to have to find somebody new, you know, be over his shoulder trying to make sure He's going to do things to our standards. And uh, so it's time so they, to find the young buck to, to drop this all on. Yeah. And they decided they wanted to sell. They were going to close on Labor Day and that was going to be their last day. And nice. uh, I think the broker listed it for 300,000 and told them if they got an offer for 280 or better that they should take it. And uh, then I think they had some offers, but they were all lower than that. And it was all yeah. to people that, owned local shops and they just didn't want to they didn't want to sell to somebody that wasn't gonna do things the way they did things they wanted to make sure that they weren't handing their customer base off to some sleazy you know thief yeah i mean i i spoke a little bit earlier about you know my grandpa having the music shop in town in my hometown um he was always like really competitive with other shops even you know 45 50 miles away and what is it just as competitive in the i mean obviously every every town every little town around has a couple auto body shops is it just as competitive between you guys oh yeah there's a huge shop like directly across the street from mine jeez um you guys like make eyes in the morning like oh i'm coming for you in the beginning, we didn't really care for each other. He was actually a customer of mine, and he's a dick. Um, <laughs> I uh, I didn't like him as a customer for O'Reilly's, and so when we took over and we were direct competitors, I definitely didn't like him. Mm. But we, I felt like the labor rate at the shop was too high. I mean, it was like a hundred and forty-seven dollars an hour. Um, so we dropped it to a hundred bucks an hour because I felt like that was reasonable for the area um 
And so that kind of ruffled some feathers because we were definitely more competitive than other shops that were our size that had the same amenities, you know, like a waiting room with couches and air conditioning and TVs and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's ultimately what helped us be successful was not being greedy and just being honest. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, as long, that's the thing is you're not greedy. You're not trying to swindle people. You're not trying to screw anybody over. You're giving people honest rates for honest work. And if other people can't do that because they want to be assholes, then screw them, (laughs) run them out of business. Yeah. I mean, I get having overhead and stuff like that. If you have like a bigger business and I mean, our overhead's pretty high where we're at because we rent, we don't own the property. Um, But I don't really feel like that's a customer's problem, right? Like that's right. You should be competitive in the area. I think even now, four years later, our rate is 120 and the average rate in Houston is 145. So there you go. Well, I mean, it seems like it's you're still making a decent living off of the the rates that you're running. So why wouldn't you? Yeah. And I get to forge stuff at work. I have a little (laughs) one by 30 up there. So if things not that things are ever slow, but do you ever like you work on a car and all of a sudden, oh, shit, I've got an hour. Let's go ahead and smack some steel around. I've got hardcore ADHD, so I'll be in the middle of doing something. And then I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I brought that piece of Mokume to work. And I have like a six inch diameter pin from an excavator that I use as an anvil. And so I'll, you know, get distracted and start doing stuff there. Nice. So do you ever take that work home where, you know, do you have project cars because you're an auto tech? Like it, you have to take an old junked out car and, and raise it back to life? Or is that now work to you? Um, sort of. I mean, I have a Subaru that's kind of sitting out front of the shop that needs some work. Um, I had a customer give me an 03 Dodge that had like 250,000 miles on it, which has kind of become my daily driver. So that's a, <laughs> a project. But I mean, most technicians generally... <laughs> They have like the junkiest cars because we know how far we can push them, right? Like I drove that Subaru with a blown head gasket for a year and a half. Dang. Well, it's it's yeah. the old adage of the shoemaker has no shoes. You know, the knife maker exactly. has no pretty knives. The auto tech doesn't really have a great car. <laughs> no, my wife gets to drive the nice one. I uh, I drive the gas guzzler that squeaks and rattles and has exhaust leaks and air conditioner works. So what more do you need? So the last thing I wanted to really bring up, and I really appreciate you sharing your secret etch solution with me because you do some absolutely amazing etches, like the super deep, hardcore, crazy etches in some of your worry stones. So Mm -hmm. do you want to talk about your process with that? Or are you kind of keeping that in your back pocket? It's all right. If you are like, don't worry about it. No, like Brian says, the rising tide lifts all ships, man. I uh, I get that some people have secrets and stuff that are kind of proprietary, but, you know, I everybody in this community has been super awesome and super helpful, and uh, I've never experienced anything like that before. Yeah. So I definitely try to pay it forward if anybody has questions. Um, generally, if I'm doing a deep etch on something, um, I will mix 30%. 
uh, ferric chloride, undiluted, just straight ferric chloride, uh, 30% muriatic acid, um, or if you can get your hands on the fancy hydrochloric acid, which I just got some in today, um, I'll mix that in, and then 40% uh, water. Um, occasionally, if, I, if it's old, I'll add a little bit of peroxide to it to kind of bring the solution back, but because I do a lot of copper Damascus and stuff, or like that Mokume, it gets contaminated super quick. So yeah. if I'm doing Damascus, generally I'm making solution right there on the spot. Um, but I'll do like a 20 minute etch cycle. And then generally I'll use like a fine wire wheel to brush that off. Or if it's something that I'm going with like a really high finish on, I'll use a buffing wheel to buff all that off and then I'll clean it. And then I'll go back into the etch for another 20 minutes and then repeat um, two or three times. And then um, sometimes on like the last cycle, I'll let it go a little longer, like 45 minutes or so. Or occasionally I fall asleep with something in the acid and then I wake <laughs> up the next morning. <laughs> well, it seems like those ones where you let it go overnight, those ones look as if they are straight out of like a treasure chest at the bottom of the ocean. Those things are so <laughs> damn cool. Yeah. And for the worry stones, it's cool because it adds texture, but yeah, like I've done a couple of Mokume beads that way. And like the copper and the brass will be, you know, an eighth of an inch lower than the nickel. If you do that. So then it's like, I could put this on a lanyard, but it's going to cut you every time <laughs> you take it out of your pocket because it's got these sharp nickel mm. edges on it. But now, could you then stone tumble that to kind of soften some of those edges? Man, I've really been thinking about it. I was watching your uh, video about your tumbler that you used with the, uh, was it a moving dolly or something that you had the wheels on? I actually went and just bought some, uh, some um, those wheels, those, I'm, I'm losing the name. Yeah, the caster wheels. And uh, two of them, two of them can be locked and two of them have to be the the movable, the, the moving caster wheels. But, um, I mean, it's just a quick tube and a hunk of wood and then four caster wheels and you're good to go. A couple clamps to keep it in place. It's a super I mean, simple I've... and cheap way to do it. Um, the one thing that I would have you look at because you're doing so many things is, I mean, the one that you can buy at Harbor Freight um, the, the problem with the tube ones is you're getting a very directional tumble where it seems like, like the all of the scratches, there, there is some scratches that go side to side, but most of them are going like spine to edge. If you're looking at blades, because yeah. you, the, the blade isn't tumbling around in, in three dimension. It's really just staying in one overall direction and spinning like a top. So yeah. the ones that you can buy at Harbor Freight where there's more room for the like the blade to move in multiple directions and you get a, a all-direction scratch pattern, I'm almost thinking that that looks better. But I don't know. It's, it's all down to your own preference. I mean, the only thing I've ever used is a five-gallon bucket with some gravel in it. <laughs> in your um, arms? <laughs> yeah, just shaking it and... Then you get tired of that after 10 minutes of it. And I'm like, yeah, that's good enough. Yeah. Um, I mean, the I only did that on those neck knives with the uh, spring steel with like the dark edge on them. Honestly, though, with your with your worry stones, they would be able to move around in multiple directions. So 
maybe that little the PVC tube situation if you have some PVC. But the one thing, the big thing that I'd have you do different is use larger than the three-inch tube. So that little three-inch tube, it, it doesn't like I, – I wish I used a four, five, or six-inch tube just so it has more tumbling action. I don't know. Yeah, no, I mean I think the Harbor Freight route is – is a decent choice. I think I just saw somebody. I don't remember if it was Hoot Knives or, or somebody that's got one like that. Maybe it was Echo Blades. Um, I know. I think I remember seeing. I think Jeff Fader just had one that he was he was using for the first time. But yeah, I don't know. I, I know that there's quite a few people who use the one from Harbor Freight, and nobody seems to complain about it. So, I mean, I feel like that's a pretty decent setup. Um, the other thing is you have to replace the uh, the tumbling media on not a super regular basis, but mine's getting super old. Yeah, I was talking to Brian House about it. He said he recommends getting like different kinds of media, like multiple kinds of media in there at the same time yeah. because it'll give you like a much better looking pattern. Yeah, I use both of the kinds, the larger and the smaller ones from Harbor Freight. And um, So you can get it all at Harbor Freight. Oh yeah, just go and go to Hobo Freight and you can get everything you need, right? <laughs> but uh yeah, so I I did both different kinds, but mine's been tumbling for like 2 years. <laughs> and I've kind of noticed on the last couple knives it's like, "Eh, I I think it it's time for a refresh." But So yeah, um so your etching solution, you said it's it's uh, basically in 30% muriatic acid, 30% straight ferric chloride. And then the last 40% was what again? Just regular water. Just straight, not even distilled water, tap water? Um, I mean, it's Texas, so it's like 107 degrees every day. So I have water bottles that are like half drank all over the garage. <laughs> so generally, I just take one of those and pour it in there. You know what it is? It's it's your extra like backwash saliva that's making it so good. You need to start I mean, like it's entirely it. possible. What what the big thing is next for you is you're gonna have to spit in a cup so people can use that for their ferric chloride edges. <laughs> yeah, I'll call mine gator spit. <laughs> oh my goodness, Darren Hiles, I really appreciate you sitting down with me. This has been a fantastic conversation. I truly appreciate not only you, but your awesome work. And the fact that you're you're doing an auto tech, trying to keep people at reasonable prices and not screwing anybody over. That just shows how good of a person you are. So if people want to follow you, where do they follow you at? Uh, Stormlight underscore Forge on Instagram. And I think it's just Stormlight Forge on Facebook. Sweet. Guys, go check out his stuff. I really think that his worry stones are, I, I need to go ahead and pony up and buy one soon because those things are just so cool. And they're, they're just a really functional little thing that you can keep in your pocket. Whenever you're worried about something, you pull it out, you rub on it and you just feel better. It gives you that bliss. Everybody needs a little bliss in their life. So Darren, yeah. thank you again. I appreciate you. I hope everyone has a fantastic day.